0: So this evening, our Bible reading is found in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13, and that's found on page 1,217 in the Bibles. So that's 1,217, and it's 1 Peter, starting at verse 13. Therefore... Prepare your minds for action. Be self controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here, in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of god for all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good.
1: And before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've provided the way to salvation. Thank you that you've provided a way to be redeemed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've given those of us here who have faith in you the gift of salvation and thereby a living and an eternal hope. Lord, please be with us now as we come to your word and speak to us through it. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get to One Peter, I'd like to tell you a story, a true story. Uh, It was published in the New York Times on the 20th of December, 2015, and it's about a guy by the name of Thomas Hughes. Now, Thomas was a 29-year-old investment banker, and finance very much ran in the family. Uh, His father had sold a small bank a few years ago for 30 million dollars. His brothers were in finance. They were all very successful. Thomas worked for a small investment banking firm in New York, where he did very well. He was quickly promoted, And in 2014, he earned a salary of $100,000, with a bonus of $400,000. But the working hours were extreme. Sometimes he slept under his desk. His mother was worried, especially when he couldn't even get a two-hour break to join them for lunch on Easter Sunday. And Thomas would just say, it's what 29-year-olds do, Mom. His dad was more impressed than he was worried. Less than two months later, on the 28th of May, after a night spent drinking, Thomas opened the window of his 24th floor Manhattan apartment, stepped out onto the stone windowsill, and stepped off. The article in the New York Times ends with the following quote from his dad. We are all struggling with this loss, John Hughes said. He starts to sob. You ask me how I deal with it. I'm not really dealing with it. I'm dealing with it by grieving, but I just don't understand. I just don't understand. It's sad, it's tragic, and it's not at all unusual, is it? Now, the article focuses on overwork and stress as the reason for increasing suicides. But that's really superficial, because that's not the root problem. So-called successful people who commit suicide usually do so because of a deeper, a far more significant, a heartfelt problem. What overwork and stress does is it just takes that problem and it makes it manifest. It makes it acute. It makes it unavoidable. The actual problem you will find in a book written a very long time ago called Ecclesiastes. And it is stated as meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? The problem occurs and makes itself felt when you come face to face with the realization that the thing you've built your hopes on can't bear the weight Of your expectations. It can't deliver. And everything you have done is meaningless. And all you're left with is the bitter disappointment of getting to the top and discovering that there's nothing there. Or even worse, that there's just another mountain. And your hope was misplaced. Your idol is insatiable. That's what Thomas realized. And he couldn't face it. He was devastated. His hope. Was misplaced. Peter's letter is also about hope. He's writing to Christians 2,000 years ago in what for us today is modern day Turkey. And he's writing to Christians who may well have been forcibly relocated into the area, into various regions in the area, by the Emperor Claudius. So they felt like strangers in a strange land. They were Christians being harassed, they were being persecuted. They were being abused. They were afraid for their lives. They, humanly speaking, were in a hopeless situation. So what does Peter say about the hope that they have compared to the basis for the hope that Thomas had? Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So Peter wants those beleaguered Christians, and he wants you to think about a living hope, by which he means a sure thing, a certain thing, a vibrant hope. Not even a hope, really, an expectation. An expectation that you'll receive an inheritance that can't perish, that can't spoil, and that can't fade, that can sustain the weight of your expectations. An inheritance you will receive when Christ returns because it's underwritten by the God of the universe, not by your achievements. That's the hope he wants them to know. That's the hope he wants us to know. That's the hope he wants us all to have a solid assurance about, a living hope. So imagine it's around AD 63. Okay, you're with other Christians and friends, and you're in an area, say, called Galatia, which is one of the regions that the letter was written to, and you and your friends are really discouraged because you've been harassed the entire week, and you hear that a guy by the name of Silas has arrived in the region, and Silas is Peter the Apostle's representative, and apparently he's got a letter with him from Peter the Apostle, written to people in your region. And that's great news. You're all excited, you get together, you want to hear the letter being read out. So Silas starts reading, and he starts with a greeting from Peter, and he then reads verses 1 to 12 in chapter 1 of the letter in front of you. And in those verses, Peter is emphasizing what you are. So he wants you to realize and to remember, verse 2, you are chosen by God the Father. Verse 3, you are spiritually reborn into a living hope. Verse 4, you are guaranteed an unimaginable inheritance. And verse 9, you are guaranteed the salvation of your souls. That's what he wants you to know. That's what he wants you to realize in the middle of the uncertainty of pressure and oppression and persecution. And that's encouraging. That's really encouraging. But what you're thinking with your friends is, so what do I do in the middle of all this? How must I be? You know, how must I, tomorrow morning, how must I live? How must I react? What must I do? So Silas carries on reading, almost as if he's answering your question for you. And you hear from verse 13 onwards, which is our passage tonight, that his answer, in summary, is live out your hope. Live out your hope. So look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully, not partially, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. The literal meaning for prepare your minds for action is gird up the loins of your mind. So they didn't wear trousers in those days, they wore long robes. And if you had to run, you grabbed the robes, you gathered them up, you tied them, girding up your loins, and you ran. That's the picture. And when he says, be self-controlled, that word is be sober, be resolute, be focused, don't be distracted. So what Peter's saying in this verse is, dump the slippers, get your running shoes on, be resolute and focused, don't be distracted by empty promises, don't put your hope anywhere else, be ready for a fight, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you until Christ is revealed. That's the kind of the picture he's painting. Anchor your hope in Christ. Anchor it on his return, because the hope for fulfillment and peace and flourishing through politics and family and wealth and success is empty and will disappoint you. Just ask Thomas Hughes. Then it gets very practical. And it gives us three practical ways in which to live out that hope. So look at verses 15 and 16. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Be holy, which also means, verse 17, being strangers. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So be holy Strangers, he tells them. That's the first thing. Then secondly, look at verse 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another another deeply from the heart. So be loving brothers and sisters. Be loving brethren, to use the old word. That's the second thing. And then the third thing, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So grow up in your salvation into the Lord. Or put it another way, grow in Christ. So those are the three things he tells them to practically live out their hope in this life that they have. And that's what he tells us. Be holy strangers, be loving brethren, and grow in Christ. So firstly, be holy strangers. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For we know it wasn't with perishable things like silver and with gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. So what he's saying is, be holy because your God is holy, verse 16, and be strangers because you call on that Holy Father, verse 17. Be holy strangers. Question one, what does it mean to be holy? Now, to be honest with you, I really struggled with this for a number of reasons. Mike Stevenson preached a sermon a few weeks ago on holiness, and afterwards he said, I really struggled with this, and I went, pfft, that's what I'm talking about. I really struggled with this. It's overwhelming, it's vast, it's critically important, and it is easy to get dangerously wrong. What is holiness? What does he mean when he says, I am holy? And how on earth do I grasp this? How can I strive to be holy like God? So it was fairly encouraging when I was doing some background reading to read the opening lines of chapter three in a book called The Holiness of God. I thought that would be a good place to go. It's written by a guy called R.C. Sproul. who's a very good theologian. And he says this, here we are already in the third chapter of this book, and I still have not defined what it means to be holy. It is nonetheless a very good book. I wish I could postpone the task even further. The difficulties involved in defining holiness are vast. There is so much to holiness, and it is so foreign to us that the task seems almost impossible. At least I think it was encouraging. Um, So what one of the best theologians on the planet struggled to do in a book of a few hundred pages, we're going to try and do in a few brief minutes. And I can guarantee, at the very least, bless you, that it will be inadequate, and that it will raise more questions than answers. But first, let's have a little experiment. So could you please think of a one-word synonym for holy? Just keep it to yourself. I'll give you a moment. Think of a one-word synonym for holy. If someone said to be holy is to be, think of one word. You got your one word? Nodding at this point would be good. good. If your word is something like good or pure or perfect or righteous, something like that, then raise your hand we have a majority, which is not surprising. You're partly right. God's actions, God's thoughts, God's promises are all always pure and good. So what he does is always holy, but that's only a part of it. God's character is staggering. He is a God that loves. He's a God who is merciful. He's a God who is just. But holiness is the only characteristic of God given triple emphasis in the Bible. Scripture doesn't say that God is just, just, just. It doesn't say that he's merciful, merciful, merciful. It doesn't say that he's loving, loving, loving. Even though all those things are true, it says holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says it in the Old Testament, and it says it in the New Testament. Holiness isn't just what God does, it's what God is. He is holy in everything he is and in everything he does. It's not one of the things he is, it's central to everything he is. It's not just that he's loving and merciful and just and holy. As Sproul puts it, it's that his love is holy love. His mercy is holy mercy. His justice is holy justice. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is holy spirit. He is holy in all his being. So yes, God's holiness means that he is perfect and he is pure. But it goes way beyond that. It means he is holy throughout. In everything he does, in everything he is, God, in more ways than we can possibly imagine or understand or comprehend, is utterly holy. It sets him apart. It's partly why, even though he's here with us now, he is totally beyond us and transcendent. So how on earth can we be holy? How can God reasonably call you to be holy as he is holy? Well, in Scripture, holiness, as it then gets applied to us, to God's creation, to the stuff he's made and to the people he's made, to both, means a number of things. But there's one thing that is overwhelmingly dominant in Scripture if you look about at holiness and how it applies to what God has made, and that one thing is to be set apart. Overwhelmingly. So in the Old Testament, for example, in the temple, certain objects were regarded as holy, as set apart. Plates, altars, shovels, tents, and so on they were set apart for a special purpose. They weren't magical. There's nothing intrinsic to a shovel that made it a holy shovel. It was just a shovel, but it was chosen. It was set apart from the rest of the shovels to fulfill a particular role in service to God, and so it was different. There's nothing the shovel could do to be chosen from amongst the other shovels. It couldn't jump up and down and say, pick me, pick me, pick me, Look, look look at this edge. I mean, just look at at these lines. None of that would make any sense. It's completely irrational. Nothing like that could be done by the shovel. It's just a shovel. In a similar way, not exactly the same because you are a sentient being and you are a responsible human, so not exactly the same. You are not an inert shovel, but in a similar way, to be holy means to be set apart because you've been chosen. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. You who have been chosen, who've been chosen past tense, who've been chosen and set aside, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, so chosen by the Father, chosen how? Through the sanctifying, through the holy making work of the Spirit. Chosen for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Two things. One, you're chosen. Two, you then obey. Importantly, you don't obey in order to get chosen. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, you are an obedient child. You are a child of the Father. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So don't conform to your previous life because you are his child. Not don't conform so that you can become his child but how could this be done? Verse 18. You know it wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed. Redeemed means bought, rescued, recovered. From the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Through Christ's sacrifice, that's how this is done. If you have faith in Christ, you've been redeemed, you've been bought, you've been rescued through the blood of Christ. You're not your own, you're God's, you're set apart, you are holy. And Peter says that because if you have been reborn and set apart, it must influence and drive and control how you live, surely. Which is why he says at the start of verse 17, the following, and remember these Christians are being treated as exiles, so it's very poignant for them. He says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. He's saying, since you're set apart, be who you are. Live your lives as awestruck strangers. Be who you are. Live out your hope. Also, whenever you see a call to holiness in Scripture, whenever Scripture says be holy or words similar to that, what you'll inevitably find is that it's tied to being set apart. So, for example, Paul in the Colossians says this. He says, as God's chosen people, given you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, H-O-L-Y, and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Not be compassion, kind, humble, gentle. To become one of God's people, we don't have that burden. Thank goodness. But as one of God's people, holy and set apart and loved, do these things. Live out your hope. So keep your place in 1 Peter and turn to Ephesians, chapter 2, page 1174. Chapter 2, verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves so that salvation is not from yourselves it's it's by grace it's a gift of god not by works so that no one can boast so you can't boast it's a gift of god it's a gift wife for what purpose for we are god's workmanship created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us to do not do good works so you will be saved we don't have that burden no, you have been saved through faith, but your salvation is the gift of God. You are God's redeemed through Christ and therefore do good works. The natural and expected outcome of being set apart, of being holy, is to be, be holy. The natural and expected outcome of the shovel being set apart to be used was that it would be used for those purposes for which it was set apart. So back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 verse 15, but just as he has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. You've been called. You've been set apart. Live as holy strangers. Be holy in all you do. Live out your hope. I've labored the point because it's important that we understand that. It's clear that the Christian hope isn't in what I do, it's in what Christ has done. It's not in what we do or what we can do. If you place your hope In what you do, you're going down the same road as Thomas Hughes, and sooner or later you will suffer the same disappointment. Our hope is in what Christ has done. That is where it is anchored. Verse 21, Through him, through Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. As strangers set apart by God through Christ, live out your hope. Be holy strangers. So that's the first thing. Secondly, live out your hope by loving your brothers and sisters, by being loving brethren. Verse 22. Now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So what Peter does is he anchors us back in be holy when he says, now that you have purified yourselves. He's not saying you made yourself pure, because that would flat out contradict everything he'd written three lines above. He's making the point that the truth you obeyed is how you were purified, through that truth through God's word working in your heart through rebirth by the Holy Spirit. That's the point he's emphasizing. And so logically, therefore, your response must include loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He quotes Isaiah chapter 40 to reinforce the point. God's word gives hope eternal. It's the love, living and enduring word of God. And men in their glory, their brief glory, which comes from what he called an empty way of life earlier, it's like grass which withers and falls. That's the glory Thomas had, which was hollow and which was fleeting. So because you are reborn, because you are holy, love one another. Now, he's call to love one another. is very brief here because what he's doing is he's laying a platform that he will build on later. Chapter 2, verse 17, love the brotherhood of believers. Chapter 3, verse 8, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Chapter 4, verse 8, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. I think you'll agree it's important to Peter, right? And what he does is he draws out three really important aspects of loving one another, and they apply to us. So the first aspect he looks at, and that he mentions we've already covered, he says it springs from rebirth, which is chapter 1, verse 22. Love one another deeply from the heart, for you've been born again. It's a rebirth that generates that love. The second aspect he looks at is the fact that it shows others see it. And he raises that in a number of times and in a number of ways. Chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Chapter 2, verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Chapter 3, verse 15. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. It shows. It was important in Acts after Pentecost that non-Christians saw how believers cared for each other. It's important for these Christians that he's writing to, and it's important for us. So that's the second aspect of love one another. But the third one, which is worth looking at a little bit more carefully, is in chapter 2, verse 4, from when he starts to paint a fantastic picture of Christians as living stones, you as a living stone, in a spiritual house, being built into a holy people with Christ as the cornerstone. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. His point is that you're one people now. Now, remember, he's writing to Jews and Christians, people from various nationalities who have been brought together and who had previously frequently been at each other's throats. So you're a Jew. You're in this new church. You have a 21-year-old daughter. Over there is a Gentile who's in this new church, who has a 25-year-old son. And these two get together. You're a single body. You're a single spiritual house. You're dependent on Christ, the cornerstone. You're dependent on one another. I became a Christian in a church which eventually became very legalistic. It eventually became the kind of church where people were far more worried about what each each other thought than about what Christ thought. And what that did was it bred a very unchristian sense of self-sufficiency and pride amongst the people in that church, especially the holier ones. And I've got this vivid memory of a young couple, very sincere, recently married, coming up to me one day and saying, We're thinking that maybe it's easier to be more godly if we're not in a church and if we're on our own. And they were deadly serious. I can't remember what I said, but I don't think it was particularly helpful. The point is if you think you can grow, if you think you can flourish without being a stone interlocked and codependent with other stones in the house of God, you are mistaken if you think you can develop and grow as a Christian without having other brothers and sisters around you to rub you up the wrong way and to knock your corners off, you're very wrong. So if you find yourself avoiding cipher or house group or midweek or worship on Sundays because you think you can develop on your own, or because it's uncomfortable, then please think about what God's Word is saying. Think about the necessity of living as a co-dependent stone in God's spiritual house. Think about what you need, and think about what others need from you. You're part of a spiritual house, but you need to be physically present. So, like I said, there are three aspects to loving one another that Peter brings out in the letter. It springs from rebirth, that's where it comes from. It shows, it's a testimony to the gospel, and you're a codependent stone in a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. And we've seen how Peter is saying, live out your hope by being holy strangers. We've seen how he's saying, live out your hope by loving your brethren and allowing yourself to be loved by them. And finally, let's see what he says about living your hope by growing in Christ. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to cover this in depth. At least that's my excuse. So briefly, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Did you notice how everything he mentions is directed at relationships between people? People who should be loving one another. So he's still speaking to how we should be towards one another. And he says, take off, remove, put aside, get rid of those things which are antithetical, which are opposite to love. And instead, verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now there's a bit of a debate here as to what Peter means by pure spiritual milk. At first glance, and a lot of commentaries, think he's referring to the word of God from the previous chapter. So crave pure spiritual milk, crave the word, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. But others, and it seems to be more likely, that he's referring to life in Christ more broadly. As he says in verse 3, Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, crave more of that life which only Christ can give. Crave more of what he describes in chapter 1, verse 8. Through him you have now you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's saying crave more of that inexpressible and glorious joy. So he's not just calling us to knowledge, it's much more than that. John Piper puts it like this. He says, Notice the words long for and tasted. These are emotion words, not just knowing words. These are feeling words. Knowing that the Lord is good, tasting that the Lord is good, are not identical. Knowing is involved, but being a Christian must mean more. So when we speak of treasuring Christ, we mean something very full and very satisfying. To live is Christ and die is gain. Because Christ is more valuable to us than all that this earth holds. Just as the old heart felt the value of earth, the new heart feels the value of Christ and earth for Christ's sake. And to back him up, there's this guy called John Calvin who says this, Crave a mode of living which has the savor of a new birth. Calvin is always more succinct than Piper. More joy. Crave more love. Crave more peace. Crave better prepared minds, as it says in the beginning. Crave less reliance on yourself, more sanctification. Crave more Christ-likeness. Crave those things so that you may grow up in your salvation, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 2, by which he means that you may become more and more like Christ. (coughs) Grow in Christ. So live out your hope. You can't earn it. It's been bought for you. Christ sacrificed himself. It's been given to you through faith by your hearing and responding to the gospel. It's a hope which isn't empty empty, like the hope that Thomas had. It's a hope we need to live out in holiness as strangers. It's a hope we need to live out by loving one another as co-dependents. It's a hope we need to live out by growing in Christ. Let's close in prayer. I'll use a prayer that I came across by a pastor called Scotty Smith, who was reflecting on this passage, which I thought was very appropriate. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the calling to think about the magnificent and measureless implications of the resurrection of Jesus, described by Peter as a living hope, not a fond hope which is fragile and uncertain, not hoping against hope, a wistful yearning, and not hoping in hope, a groundless optimism, but a living hope. Lord, we dare live with hope because Jesus is alive, raised from the dead. He's not our dead model to imitate. He's our present Savior to know, to love, and to trust. We can live with hope because we too are alive a second time, having been given new birth, a new life, and a new creation story through the gospel. You cannot love us more, and you will never love us less. Father, thank you that this inheritance is not only being kept for us, but that we we are being kept for it shielded by your power until the day Jesus returns and you finish your good work in us. We can no more keep ourselves saved than we were ever able to earn our salvation in the first place. Hallelujah many times over. Through this living hope, may we live, Lord, and love to your glory. May we suffer and wait patiently by your grace. May we love and serve Christ more and more and fret and fear less and less. And we pray this in Jesus' name.